If we could turn in our Bibles to 2 Kings chapter 16, we're going to look at the life of Ahaz this evening. And really tonight as we look at this king of Judah, he's perhaps one of the worst kings. Um, there's a handful of them, but he's one of the worst. And, and we'll see the reason that he was one of the worst is because of his idolatry. Uh, God is almighty God and there is no God like him. Can any, everybody attest to that? Thumbs up. Yeah, there's only one God. He's, he's the one who made heavens and the earth and everything that is around us. He's complete. He's the potentate. He is the uh, pant, uh, panto creator. He is the creator of all things, right? And he deserves to be worshipped, nobody else. And yet we have kings, and you remember as we've gone through the... Uh, as we've gone through First and Second Kings, we've seen a horrible... Uh, pattern, and that is the kings in the north, uh, the ten tribes in the north, after they had split, after Solomon had um, passed from the scene and his son Rehoboam sat on the throne, that it was at that time that the kingdom, the united kingdom, had split into two parts, the northern ten tribes and then the southern two tribes, Benjamin and Judah, and the northern ten tribes never recovered from their idolatry. Uh, Jeroboam, who was the um, progenitor, if you will, of that uh, line, he uh, never recovered from his idolatry, creating, if you remember, two centers of worship, one in the northern part of Israel in what we know to be as Dan, and the other one in Bethel, more in the center of the country. And they were places where they set up golden calves to worship. And his desire was to keep people away from Jerusalem, to keep those northern ten tribes, all those people, to keep them from being tempted to go down to worship where God had said that this is the place that I am to be worshipped. God would choose a place, and we'll see that in Deuteronomy uh, tonight, that he chose a place, a specific tribe, a specific place where he ought to be worshipped. And... Um, and, and it's interesting because the southern two tribes, although they did much better, there were a number of evil kings in the southern two tribes. And you'd think that after all that God had done for them, how he had allowed them to build their temple, how God guided and directed all of their steps up to that point, you would think that there would be an obvious desire and an acknowledgement that God is who he says he is and he deserves to, and to be worshipped. But such is the heart of natural man. If a man is not uh, toward God, he will fall for anything. He will seek to worship anything and everything other than God. But aren't you glad that once you came to Jesus, your search was over? You came to him, he, he came into your life, the Spirit of God indwelt you, and instantly, for, for, for many of us, it was that experience. There was an instant understanding that I have been changed. Something has happened to me. And for some, it's been a slow, gradual thing. and others, it was like a jackhammer or a lightning bolt. For me, it was a lightning bolt. But for others, it's different. And so we, we ought not to be concerned about our experiences. But the main thing is that you get it, that you have that relationship with God and that you give your heart to him. And, and so tonight is really um, about worship and the southern two tribes, they had a handful of kings. 
that were exemplary. And tonight is not one of them. (laughs) Tonight is one of the worst kings that ever stepped foot on the throne in Judah. And he was involved in false worship, meaning he no longer worshipped Almighty God. He no longer worshipped Yahweh, the creator of heaven and earth, as his forefathers had, including David, the progenitor of the dynasty in Judah. But this man, Ahaz, did so many things to provoke God to anger. Does anybody like to provoke God to anger? Raise your hand if you do, because if you do, we'd like to step, you know, talk with you outside. Um, No, um, you know, none of us wants to provoke God to anger. But do you understand that we provoke God when we disobey him? Now, why? Is it because that God is so insecure that he's got to have people that just constantly affirm his deity? You know, God, you're so wonderful. He's like, oh, thank you. And nobody knows. Nobody treats me like you do. I love you. No, he he could care less about what we think, in a sense. He desires that we have uh, fellowship with him, but he's perfectly fine by himself. Did Did you know that? He was perfectly fine before he said, in the beginning, God. Before he created the heavens and the earth and all that's in them, he was perfectly fine the way he was. He didn't need any of us. But he delights when we, when his own creation comes to him of their own volition. And see, that's what love is. It's a volitional choice. It's a, it's a choice of my will. It's, a, it's proof of the love that I have because of what God has done for me. He's given us life and everything that we need. And on top of that, he gave us the greatest thing above all. And that's everlasting life. He's given us the Spirit of God as a down payment, as the earnest of our salvation. He gave us a part of that now so that we could experience a little bit of heaven on this side of our our breath here on this earth. Right? He's done that. But think of how much more important that is than even the 70 or 80, maybe 90 years, and if I'm really fortunate and I've eaten all my vegetables and taken all my vitamins, and I exercise. Even if I live to be 100, what is that in comparison to eternity? It's nothing. It's almost like it never even happened. Do you understand? That's how, that's how big eternity is, because eternity is not even big, because what are you going to compare it to? It never ends. And see, that's, folks, that's what we have to look forward to. So is worship important? You better believe it's, it's, it's very important. And Ahaz tonight is going to be one of the worst. And he's going to shun God. He's going to spurn God. And all that God has told him to do, he's going to violate everything. And God in his mercy allows this man to reign for quite a while. God is a God of mercy. We can never forget that. God isn't up there. And, and people have this, this thought about who God is. That he's just some angry man in the heavens, just, you know, if you don't do what I tell you, I'm going to smash you, you know. And that's the, the idea that people have, and it's so wrong. As you read through the entire scripture, and if you read through it several times, and if you have the Spirit of God in you, if you're a Christian, you're going to come to understand the character and the nature of God. And it's so far from that. He, in fact, the Bible says that uh, judgment is his strange work. It's something he has to do because perfect love also has a perfect vengeance. He hates sin, but he loves you. 
Yes, even the most hardened criminal on the streets, even the serial killer, even you know, the serial whatever it is, he loves that person, but he hates the sin. And he, and he certainly is allowing it for now. Because anybody notice there's a battle going on? <laughs> there's a battle for your soul. And before you came to Christ, if you're not a Christian tonight, I want to encourage you to make that decision today because you don't know, you're not guaranteed tomorrow. But I know that for a fact because I remember the moment when I was living and doing my own things, continually in sin, didn't even have a, an, an interest in turning from my sin, happy in my sin even, even though it led me, it had some nasty results. I was happy in my sin, I wasn't looking. And then God intervened. And someone told me and shared with me in the word of God that my sin would separate me from God for eternity. And I'm like, what? I thought he was a loving God. He's like, well, he is a loving God. That's why he gave his son, Jesus Christ, to, be, to, to die in your place. A holy God with holy blood, the only one who could have satisfied God's holy... Who could have satisfied, who could have satisfied him? Only, only God can do that. And God the Son took that sin, took that punishment upon him that you and I deserve in our place so that we wouldn't have to receive eternal punishment. But there's one catch. I must believe in him. I must receive him. And when I receive Christ and I confess my sins, I ask him to forgive me and I say, Lord, come into my life by your spirit. Come in and, and, and take up residence in this cold, nasty heart of mine. And then when he does, things change. Things change. It's like a new sheriff in town. You know there's something that's going on that you, you couldn't have done yourself. There is, there's, a, there's a person, the, the very spirit of God has indwelt you. And that, the spirit of God is always to bring worship and bring attention and glorify who? Jesus. Right? It says in John 14, he says, I have come to not glorify myself, but I've come to glorify the Son. And then what does Jesus say? I've not come to glorify myself, but I came to glorify the Father. Can you see how that all works? The Spirit of God in us, we worship Jesus Christ and the Father, and, the, and, and Jesus Christ, he glorifies the Father. That's all he does. He glorifies the, the Father. And the Spirit in us glorifies Christ. And who are you worshiping tonight? Are you worshiping a Jesus of the Bible? Or are you worshiping a Jesus of your own making? Yes, you can make a Jesus of your own making. And how do we do that? How do I make a, how do I make a Jesus of my own making? Well, it's pretty simple, really. You go to a church where they're not teaching you the full counsel of God, all of the Bible. That's why we go through it book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse, word by word. We go through the entire thing and we expound what's there. We don't make things up. We say exactly what God is saying and show that because that's enough. But who are you worshiping? If you go to a church that says, well, it's okay for two homosexual couples to, to live together, and to stay together and continue in that relationship. That is a Jesus. If you hold to that and you believe that, you believe a Jesus that's different from this, from the Word of God. Because God says that that's an abomination. 
He also says that heterosexual fornication is also sin. Okay? So there's no favorites. But if you believe in a God that allows that and allows abortion, allows all these other things that are going on, then you believe another Jesus. But it's not the Jesus of the Bible. So it's very important that we worship Jesus of the Bible. Jesus of the Bible, Ahaz, was not worshiping the God of the Bible. He was worshiping everything but it. Now, normally I like to read through the entire chapter, and this chapter is fairly short tonight, but I'm going to refrain from doing that because we've got a lot of places to go tonight. So I'm just going to jump right in, and um, I would encourage you to read it in context later. Read through the entire thing, and maybe listen to the recording uh, through our, you know, the podcast, or you can look at the video um, after the service. You can go to you know, our website, and you can review the whole thing again another time and take more notes or whatever, but I'm just going to get started. So notice in the, in the uh, why did I turn to Luke? <laughs> I turned to Luke for some reason. All right, 2 Kings chapter 16. Notice what it says. In the 17th year of Pekah, the son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, king of Judah, began to reign. So we're talking about two different kings. Pekah, who was the son of Remaliah, he was um, the, the king in the northern ten tribes. He reigned for 20 years in Israel from 752 to 732 B.C., a total of 20 years. But the real, um, and he was the eighth dynasty of the northern kingdom, and then it says, and then Ahaz, so in the 17th year of this Pekah, son of Remaliah, Ahaz, the son of Jotham, who was king of Judah, he began to reign. And his reign, Ahaz's reign, began in 735 B.C. while being co-regent with his father Jotham of Judah. Jotham lived longer, but uh, through a series of things, his son, Ahaz, had to come in and, and help his father oversee the kingdom, and he was actually a vice-regent for a season until he became a, um, uh, a vice-regent until he actually became a, um, the king himself. And so he reigned. Uh, with his father until his father died. But notice in verse 2, it says, Ahaz was 20 years old when he became king, and he reigned 16 years in Jerusalem. So now we're speaking specifically of Ahaz. And notice what it says. And he did not do what was right in the sight of the Lord his God, as his father David had done before. Now this was interesting, because you, you heard me say that Ahaz was one of the worst kings of Judah, and he is. Now, there's also another king that his name sounds very similar to Ahaz, and it's Ahab. Ahab and Ahaz. And an easy way to remember which king reigned in which kingdom is to envision, if you will, if you look up at me and you see a picture of, of, of Israel, here's the northern part of Israel, here's the southern part, and, and so you have the northern part and then the southern part underneath. Well, the, think of Ahab with a B at the end, and then Ahaz with a Z at the end. So it, it, it's just a little easy mnemonic where you can remember, is Ahab, which kingdom was it? Because the Ahab and Ahaz, if you're like me, I always get those confused until I created my own little mnemonic device to help me remember where they went, okay? But um, remember Ahab, we, we already discussed him prior, 
And you remember that Elijah and Elisha were contemporaries of King Ahab. But now Ahaz, um, it says that in verse 3, it says that Ahaz walked in the ways of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. Now, having his son pass through the fire means that he literally sacrificed him to a pagan Canaanite deity. And there were a number of Canaanite deities, but often it was Molech, this, this god that looked like um, part bull and part you know, man. And uh, he was a, a Canaanite deity. And they did this sort of practice of causing their sons to pass through the fire. They did this in the valley of the son of Hinnom. And you may be wondering, well, where is this valley of the son of Hinnom? Well, it's located, uh, if you look on the screen, you can see a map of it. And this area right to the south of, this is the Temple Mount up in the center right here, and this is the city of David, Zion. So right below that is the, the Hinnom Valley. And right in this valley is where they would typically do these child sacrifices, and they would, um, uh, have, they would have this molten uh, uh, god that we will look at in just a moment. Today, if you were to look at this place, the valley of the son of Hinnom, here is a picture of it, and, and basically this is just the, uh, there's a road going around the southern end of Mount Zion. The Temple Mount is up in this area off to the screen that you can't see, but the, a road that we take a bus often uh, goes up around here like this, and this is all like a garden, and, and, and the, the soil there is very rich, and, and no doubt because it used to be a garbage pit. And this is also where they would sacrifice, they would have a place in this area called Topheth. And it was an area where they would have an altar and they would heat up this, uh, this deity that looks similar to this. It was a, a molten image and they would light a fire on her and it would become molten red, so hot. And they would take children postpartum they would take them and put them into the arms of Molech and the baby would would incinerate there in the arms of this god that they had created and the worshipers would raise their voices and they would scream at the top of their lungs and they would worship Molech so much that they couldn't hear the child screaming and this is how awful things had become and can you imagine the heart of god what do you think he thought about all of that? I think you know. Now, Ahaz wasn't the only one who did this abominable practice. We know that in 2 Kings chapter 21, um, Manasseh, who was Ahaz's grandson, he also caused his son to pass through the fire. If you're um, at 2 Kings chapter 16, go to 2 Kings chapter 21. Just flip over a couple of pages to chapter 21, and we'll see that Ahaz's grandson, who we'll, we will read about in coming weeks, his name was Manasseh. He was another horrible, horrible king. And notice that he did the same practice. It says in 2 Kings 21, beginning in verse 1, Now Manasseh was 12 years old when he became king, and he reigned 55 years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Hephzibah. 
And he did evil in the sight of the Lord according to the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. And why? He rebuilt the high places which Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed. He raised up altars for Baal and made a wooden image. And as, as Ahab, king of Israel, had done... And he worshipped all the host of heaven, and he served them. He built altars in the house of the Lord, to which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And also, verse 6, here it is, He made his son pass through the fire, practiced soothsaying, he used witchcraft, he consulted spiritists and mediums. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, notice, to provoke him to anger. And so this practice was done by not only uh, kings in the north, but the kings in the south began to do it as well. They began to worship. It wasn't good enough to worship the God of the creation. Now you've got to worship you know, these four-footed things and these images of things that God said for not, them not to worship. Later on in history, from Hezekiah, or excuse me, from Manasseh, in chapter 23 of 2 Kings, there's going to come a man, and we're going to read about him in coming weeks. His name was Josiah. He was one of the greatest kings Israel had ever had. He was, he was a reformer king. All of them were doing these horrible, despicable things. And when Josiah came to the throne, he got rid of it all. He dismantled these altars. He burned everything up. He, he, he cleaned house, literally. And it says in 2 Kings 23, verse 10, that he defiled Topheth, this place where they would, at the, at the, in the valley of the son of Hinnom, where they would do these abominable practices. He totally defiled it, um, Josiah did, which is in the valley of the son of Hinnom, that no man might make his son or daughter pass through the fire to Molech. And so this was uh, postpartum abortion. Think of that. Postpartum, excuse me, not postmortem, postpartum abortion. The baby's already been born, now we're going to kill it. That's what they were doing. It was murder. And these pagan practices, these pagan places of worship, like Topheth, were around way before Israel even began as a nation. We know back in, the, in Megiddo, up in the northern part of Israel, there is an altar up there, uh, and it's uh, about 2500 to 1800 BC. And this altar was a place that they would have rituals where they would do the same thing with children. Children sacrifice, they would sacrifice animals, which was normally part of um, you know, the worship of God, but they would sacrifice children. They would also have. Uh, temple prostitutes. They would have prostitution here at this very spot. And we've been to this place. And they've uncovered it in Megiddo. And it's there to this day. And we're seeing the same thing today. So how does this apply to us? Because that's really the crux of the whole matter. This is all nice historically. But what about us? What about our culture that we live in today? Well, we're seeing the same thing. Laws are being passed in America that allow the, a, a child of a botched abortion to be killed after they're born. Did you know that? There are laws that if they try to abort and the child comes out and somehow he, he or she survives, they can finish it off after the child is born. Planned Parenthood, they perform thousands of these in-the-womb in abortions, thousands of them every day in America. And America's, Americans, we have voted... And, um, and put politicians and leaders 
in place that support this and protect this practice with great misguided passion. We have done this. Now, not you necessarily, but as a country, this is what we have wanted. This is what we get. And do you think that America is going to be guiltless while God's own people, the Jews in Israel, were judged for these things? Do you think God's going to let us get away with it and say, well, you guys are Americans. You're better than everybody else. You get a pass. No. If he didn't, do, if he didn't give his own people a pass, we will not get a pass on this. So what am I saying? We're in trouble. <laughs> As a nation, we're in trouble. This country needs to repent. The church in America needs to repent. All of us need to say, Lord, I, I, I don't want to ever see this. I don't want to support this. I don't want to have anything to do with this. I want to promote life. Didn't God say... Today I give before you life and death. Didn't he tell that to the Jews, to the Israelites, before they crossed over into the promised land? Today I give you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life. And what have we done as America? We have chosen death. And we have every right for God to do whatever he wants because we've given him plenty of reasons to do that. I'm also thankful for the grace of God He's been very gracious to America, and he's certainly gracious to his people, you and I. And obviously none of us support that, and if you do, you shouldn't, right? But we've been forgiven. We know that God, if you're a believer in Christ, your sins have been forgiven. We know that we're, when we die or when the rapture comes, we're going to be with him. And, and he's good with that because that was his plan. But folks, there are a lot of people around us that don't believe this. And it doesn't matter whether they believe it or they don't believe it because God says it's going to happen and it's going to happen. Those who are his are going to be in heaven with him, but those who reject him to their very last breath, there is no hope for them. He gives them every opportunity, but if they reject him to the end, there's no place but hell for them. And it breaks the heart of God for anyone to choose that place. He doesn't send them there. They make the decision themselves they make the decision themselves. No one will be able to stand before the judgment of God and, for, and, and, and say, God, you never told me. I never knew the truth. No, God's going to say, I sent you. You remember when I sent you that Christian? You remember when I sent him again? Remember that guy who was always talking to you at work and you were like, later, I don't want to talk about it. Well, I sent them, I sent them, I sent them, and you rejected my word all of the time. No one will be able to say, I didn't know. It's very important that we receive Jesus. Extremely important. There's only one way to God. What did Jesus say in John 14, verse 6? I am the way, the only way, I'm the only truth, I'm the only life. No man comes to the Father except through me, Christ the Messiah, Jesus Christ. His name means God's salvation. That's what his name means. Jehovah Shua. God's salvation. So, look at the end of verse 3. It says that Ahaz walked in the way of the kings of Israel. Indeed, he made his son pass through the fire. Notice, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before the children of Israel. Yes, while they were still in Egypt, God was giving those Canaanite cities and Canaanite uh, 
um, entities there, nations in Canaan today, modern-day Israel. He gave them space to repent, but they would not. They continued in their idolatry. What does it tell us in Leviticus? You might just want to write this reference down next to verse 3 here, and I'm going to read it to you. It's Leviticus chapter 18, verses 20 through 25. So just put Leviticus 18, verse 20, because this is what it says back in the Old Testament. God says this, Moreover, verse 20, You shall not lie carnally with your neighbor's wife to defile yourself with her. And you shall not let any of your descendants pass through the fire to Molech, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. There it is, folks. We don't make the rules. God made male and female. There is only an XX and an XY. That's it. You're either male or female. There's no other genders. You're male or female. God said it was good. It was very good. And now he says, be fruitful and multiply. Very easy. Nor shall you mate with any animal to defile yourself with it. Nor shall any woman stand before an animal to mate with it. It is perversion. Do not defile yourselves with any of these things, for by all these The nations are defiled, which I am casting out before you. Do you see what's happening? God is saying, because I am going to judge those nations before you guys cross over into the promised land, I'm going to use you as my hammer of judgment against a nation, seven nations of people who have rejected me and are doing these things. And God says, I've had enough. Back in Genesis 15, God says, I'm not going to bring the children of Israel in there yet because the iniquity of the Amorites has not yet fallen. Do you hear the grace of God? I'm giving them space. He gave them a few hundred years, several hundred years to turn. They did not. They continued. They continued. And if I continue doing bad things, don't I deserve something as a result of that? What does the Bible tell us? The wages of sin is what? Is death. A wage is something I earn, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The gift is eternal life. Do you want the wages of sin, or do you want the gift of God, which is eternal life through Christ Jesus? I think I'm going to take the Jesus with the eternal life part. I'm going to do that. I don't want the judgment of God. Raise your hand if you want the judgment of God. Nobody wants the judgment of God. I want the love of God. And do you know, it says, for God so loved the world, right? He so loved the people of the world that he gave as a gift, as a gift, an unmerited gift by grace, he gave his only son, his only begotten son, Jesus Christ, that whosoever believes in him shall not or shall not, uh, shall not perish, but shall have everlasting life. Do you see the wonderful thing in that? But my sin separates me from God. So what do I do with that? I I confess my sin and receive Christ. How simple is that? Even a child can do it. And yet my pride gets in the way. And Ahaz, his pride, no, I'm going to do it my way. I want to worship my way. You can't tell me how to worship. If God tells me, Rob, this is the way you are to approach me. You're not speaking to a president You're not speaking to a vice president. You're not speaking to some important person on the earth. You're talking about the creator of all things. 
Rob, this is how I want you to approach me, and this is how you're to worship me. Yes, sir, (laughs) is the right response. I'll do whatever you tell me to do. You tell me to jump, I'm going to say how high. And he's like, don't get weird on me. Just love me and I'll love you. Because these things that I'm sharing with you, they're going to bring life to you. Your life is going to be fruitful. It's going to be a blessing. But as soon as you start, you know, I know you because I've created you in my image. And so when you allow the the devil and, and him to cause you to do these things in your flesh, you want to do them. Do you understand that I have to say something about it? I can't just let you go. It's like my daughter, when she was on her big wheel, going down our road, you know, there's a road out in front of our house, and she's going down our driveway. We had to put cones up at the end. Honey, don't go past those cones. And then when she tried to sneak past them, we had to spank her. And why? Because we don't want her dead. And God is like the same way. He's like, if you continue being a drug user and snorting cocaine and injecting meth and heroin into your veins, you're probably going to die. You continue in that lifestyle, you're going to die. You continue in unprotected you know, uh, homosexual activity, you're going to get sick and you're going to die. you continue doing these things that are bad, you continue sleeping around, and you continue um, having adulterous relationships with other people who are married, you're going to get shot. There's going to be a jealous husband who's going to pull out 45 good reasons why you should stay away from his wife. And you'd better listen. In Deuteronomy, well, you know, I, I think I've given that point enough time. But notice at the end of verse 3, according to the abominations of the nations whom the Lord had cast out from before them, before the children of Israel. This last part uh, of this verse is uh, really important, you know, and we, and we looked at that, and um, God is serious about sin. Notice verse 4 now back in our text. It says, and he, speaking Ahaz, He sacrificed and burned incense on the high places, on the hills, uh, under every green tree. Now, let me ask you a question. What tribe is Ahaz from? Judah. Who was supposed to be offering incense and offering offerings on the altar? The priest. From what tribe? Levite. From Levi. Very clear in the word of God. If you've, we've been going through this together. Very clear. It's to be them. They are the ones to do it, not someone from Judah. So Ahab wasn't even supposed to do this. But notice it says, and he, he sacrificed and burnt incense on the high hills under every green tree. He wasn't supposed to do it. But because he was so far gone in other areas, why would he think rightly? He was already corrupted. He was, he was in it. And also, the worship was only to, be, to take place at the altar in Jerusalem. It tells us this. Off to the side of verse 4, write this reference. Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 13. And let me read it to you. Deuteronomy 12, verse 13. This is what it says. God speaking to his people before they even come into the promised land. What does he tell them? Take heed to yourself that you do not offer your burnt offerings in every place that you see but in the place which the Lord chooses. In one of your tribes, there you shall offer your burnt offerings, and there you shall do all that I command you. So God is saying, once you get into the promised land, I'm going to choose one of your tribes, and in a specific place, I'm going to have you do this. 
And through the process of time, God made it very clear. It was Jerusalem through the tribe of Judah, or, or through, through the Levites. And, and they were to be the worship leaders. They were the ones where they would bring the animals to be sacrificed. Yes, animals. Remember the Old Testament, the New Testament? They sacrificed animals to cover our sin. Or, or to make atonement for our sin. An innocent life in place of mine. And God allowed that. It's called um, uh, a propitiation. There's a fancy word. Substitutional forgiveness. Atone, substitutional atonement. But now that Jesus once and for all came, there's no longer need for animal sacrifices. He laid down his life once and for all. And so... It was going to be in Jerusalem at the altar. But notice what Ahaz does. He's putting up these little altars all around Jerusalem, everywhere. And then in verse 5 it says, Then reason, king of Syria, he's the Aramaeans, these are the Syrians, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel. Notice now, they came up to Jerusalem to make war with Ahaz, and they besieged Ahaz. Now, uh, not only was Reason, the king of Syria, coming after him, but now his neighbors, his own brothers from the north, are now coming against him as well. And one thing you have to remember is that Israel, or excuse me, Jerusalem, is on the top of a mountain range. Mount Moriah, and because it's well fortified, it's got walls all around it, it's got a water source going through the middle of it. So they have plenty of water, they're well fortified, not an easy place to take over. And so, um, you know, they, 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 it was very hard to be victorious over this city. So now you got Syria, the king of Assyria, or uh, king of Syria, excuse me, and Pekah, the northern ten tribes, the king of the northern ten tribes. Now they're both coming down upon Jerusalem. Uh, turn with me, if you would, to um, Isaiah chapter 7. Because there's two passages that I'd like for you to really consider reading. And we're going to be touching on a lot of this tonight. Um, it's Isaiah chapter 7 and Second Chronicles chapter 28. As you read this 16th chapter in 2 Kings 16, if you were to only go to 2 Chronicles 28 and Isaiah 7, it will fill in all the blanks, fill in a lot of stuff here to help you understand. So notice, it says in uh, chapter, one, uh, or chapter 7, verse 1 of chapter 7 of Isaiah, it says, Now it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, that reason, king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, king of Israel, went up to Jerusalem to make war against it, but could not prevail against it. And it was told to the house of David, saying, Syria's forces are deployed in Ephraim, which is the northern ten tribes. And so the king, Ahaz, and all the residents, their heart and the heart of the people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind, and then the Lord said to Isaiah, because Isaiah was a contemporary of Ahaz and, and the people at that time. The Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and, and uh, Sheer Bashab, your son. That was his name. How'd you like a name like that? You know, not Joe or Bill or something like that. It's Sheer Bashab. Hey, Sheer, how you doing? And meet them, meet him at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field and say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear or be faint hearted for these two stubs, 
These two stubs of smoking firebrands, do you notice how the Lord called the, um, he called the king of, of Syria and he called Pekah the king of Israel? He called them stubs of smoking firebrands. He says, for the fierce anger of reason in Syria and the sons of Remaliah, he says, because Syria, um, Ephraim and the son of Remaliah have plotted evil against you, saying, quote, let us go up against Judah and trouble it and let us make a gap in the wall for ourselves and set a king over them, the son of Tabel. And then God responds. This is what they're saying, Isaiah. Go tell them, go tell Ahaz and everybody in Jerusalem that this is what they're saying, but this is what I'm going to say. And God intervenes and says, it's not going to happen. It shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is reason. Within 65 years, Ephraim will be broken, so that it will not be a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is Remaliah's son. If you will not believe, surely you shall not be established. And he says, moreover, the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of for yourself. From the Lord your God. Ask it in the depth or in the height above. And Ahaz says, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Do you see the hypocrisy in that? He, he was so involved in his own worship, and, you know, in his false worship, that now God says, Syria and the, the king of Israel, they're not gonna, it's not going to happen. They're not going to come and take over. I know it looks really bad, but it's not going to happen. And to prove it to you, Ahaz, ask for me a sign. Ask for me a miracle, and I will do it to you, whatever it is. And, and Ahaz says, I'm not going to do it. I'm not going to test the Lord. So what does it tell us? This is the verse we know around Christmas time. Therefore, the Lord will... Um, oh, excuse me, verse 13. Then he says, Hear now, O house of David. Is it a small thing for you to weary man, but will you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. Curds and honey he shall eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you dread will be forsaken of both of, their, of her kings. Now Isaiah gave this prophecy in 734 B.C. And reason and Pekah would both be killed by 732 B.C. You see how his prophecy was right on the money? Within two years, both of those guys are going to die. And it came to pass. And so there was a woman who was a virgin at that time. Some say it might have been Isaiah's wife. We don't really know. There's some speculation about that. But there was a woman who was a virgin. But then she does get married. She does give birth to a son right about this time. And before that child would know to discern between good and evil... Both of those two kings would die. That is definitely true. But also, the Lord is showing us something even more interesting. It was a partial fulfillment because we know the ultimate fulfillment of this prophecy came when Jesus was born. Behold, the virgin shall conceive. Who was the virgin? Mary. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and his name shall be called what? Emmanuel, God with us. That's what Emmanuel means, God with us. Literally, God implanted that seed in Mary's womb. Joseph had nothing to do with it. Nothing to do with it. That happened before they came together as husband and wife. Before the marriage was consummated, that happened. That's why it's never happened again. 
It never happened, and it'll never happen again. It happened once, and it happened to a young girl, young teenage girl named Mary. So, verse 6 in our text again. Go back to 2 Kings 16. So at that time, Reason, king of Syria, captured Elath for Syria and drove the men of Judah from Elath, and then the Edomites went to Elath and dwelled there to stay. Now Elath, if you look on the map on the screen, you can see where this place is. Uh, you know, this is the, um, uh, the Gulf of Aqaba, and right up here is, right there at the very tip of that is a little port city named Elat. And you can visit it today. It's called Elat. And this is the place that Reason captured. He came down and captured this city. And, um, and in Second Chronicles, we don't really have... Um, Oh, we don't have a lot of time to go there, but let me tell you this. Read Second Chronicles chapter 28, verses 5 through 15. It gives a lot of information on this, on what had happened. Because um, I want to get to verse 7. And so Ahaz... Ahaz sent messengers to Tiglath-Pileser, king of Assyria saying, uh, and so just picture this. So here's Ahaz, and right now he's got the Pekah, the son of Israel, and Reason, the, the king of Syria. Both of them are coming, and then uh, there are some things that occurred there that are really ugly, and you can read Second Chronicles 28 and find out what that is, really ugly stuff. But now, because of that, there is another empire over here called the Assyrian Empire. Assyrian Empire. And so what does Ahaz do? Does he call upon God and say, God, help? No, he doesn't. And instead, he goes to Ahaz saying, I'm your servant and your son. Come and save me from the hand of the king of Syria and from the hand of the king of Israel who rise up against me. And this was a really big mistake. So instead of relying on the Lord, he hoped in the deliverance of some pagan nation surrounding him. What did, what did David tell us in Psalm 60? Give us help from trouble for help, for the help of man is useless. He should have been crying out to God. What does it tell us in Isaiah 31? Woe to those who go down to Egypt, meaning anyone else in the world. Woe to those who go to the world for help and rely on horses, who trust in chariots because they are many and in horsemen because they are very strong, who do not seek, who do not look to the Holy One of Israel, nor seek the Lord. And this is who Ahaz chose to go. I want to go and ask this mighty man over here, this you know, king of Assyria, Tiglath Pileser III, come and save me. And Ahaz took the silver. He took the so Ahaz took the silver and the gold that was found in the house of the God uh, in the temple and in the treasuries of the king's house, and he sent it as a present to the king of Assyria. Basically, I'm going to pay you. I'm going to ask you to come and help me, and I'll even pay you. And notice that he sent it to the king of Assyria as a gift, hoping to receive help. There was no guarantee at all. It was a big gamble, very foolish on many levels. So the king of Assyria, verse 9, heeded him, for the king of Assyria went up to Damascus, which belongs to Syria. So now Assyria is now coming against Syria. Do you follow? And the capital of Syria is Damascus. <laughs> 
Now think about that, because that's all this guy did. That's all Tiglath-Pileser III did. He only came against Syria because he wanted Damascus anyway. He didn't come down and attack Pekah, the son of Remaliah, to deliver him. No, he just he took the money, he took the gold that Ahaz sent him and says, I'm going to do what's convenient for me. And right now, I'm going to conquer this peace. You've got your own problems. I'm not going to worry about that. I'm going to take this. That's what I wanted to do anyway. By the way, thanks for the money. Appreciate it. I was going to do it anyway, but you know what's nicer with a bag of, you know, $100 bills in my pocket. So the king of Assyria only heeded Ahaz in doing what he was already planning on doing. In other words, the king of Assyria wanted to take control over Damascus, which was the capital city of Syria, and he wanted to depose or kill reason the king of Syria anyways. So now Ahaz gives him money to help him, um, and, and, and he's more happy, you know, Tiglath-Pileser is more than happy to receive it, but he does nothing to Pekah. Tiglath-Pileser looks at uh, you know, the northern ten tribes and says, I'm not going to worry about those guys. It's not up to me right now. It's not in my heart. I don't feel like it today. But I will take care of Syria and Damascus because I want that for myself. So it was convenient. So now, from verse 10, throughout the rest of the chapter, we're going to see Ahaz's false worship. And this is really heartbreaking. So notice verse 10. So King Ahaz, he went to Damascus to meet Tiglath-Pileser, probably to thank him. Thank you for getting Syria off my back. And the king, of, you know, King Rezin, thank you for that. And while he was there, he saw an altar that was at Damascus. And King Ahaz sent to Uriah the priest the design of the altar and its pattern according to all of its workmanship. So Ahaz wasn't supposed to do this because according to the law, um, he was, um, uh, according to the law that it tells us in Exodus chapter 20, verse 24, what did God tell the children of Israel? An altar of earth you shall make for me, and you shall sacrifice on it your burnt offerings and your peace offerings, your sheep and your oxen. Every place where I record my name, I will come to you and I will bless you. And if you make me an altar of stone, notice this, this is very important. If you make me an altar of stone, you shall not build it of hewn stone. In other words, none of this decorative brick that we buy when we build this you know, thing out in our backyard, you know, this all nicely chiseled and everything. No, no, God says, don't put your hand on it. Why? He says, for if you use your tool on it, you have profaned it. That's kind of weird. Why? Why is that such a big deal? Well, because what happens on that altar, is it supposed to be pretty? I mean, think of it. If you and I were to sacrifice and build an altar and sacrifice an ox or a sheep, what is happening on that altar it's covering for your sin. You know, back in the Old Testament, of course, that's what they did, right? And it's a bloody mess. It's ugly. The altar is a place of death. Why should you make it look all nice and chiseled and put little bows around here and have a little, you know, ice sculpture in the middle and, you know, little angels, you know, hovering over? I mean, none of that. God says, that's a place of death. Don't put your hand on it. If you put a tool on it, you've profaned it. I would encourage you also to read Deuteronomy chapter 27, verses 4 through 6. It kind of just talks more about this. God didn't want them. So verse 11, it says, Then Uriah the priest, 
When he hears this, when he gets the plans, you know, so Ahaz, he's in Damascus, he sends a fax. I mean, he had a, 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 a courier, of course, but he sends a fax machine, and it takes a picture on his phone, sends it to Uriah, says, build one just like this, it's so nice. It's so beautiful, it beats that other ugly thing that we got in the temple. This is so beautiful. Oh, it's so nice. When the sun hits the rock like that and it's polished, it's so beautiful. I gotta have it. I gotta have one. Then Uriah the priest built an altar according to all that King Ahaz had sent him from Damascus. And so Uriah the priest made it before King Ahaz came back from Damascus. And when the king came back from Damascus, the king saw the altar and the king approached the altar and made offerings on it. Problem, is he supposed to make offerings? Being a king of Judah? No, it's supposed to be the Levites. But God had a way of his prescribed. This is very reminiscent of a few times in the scripture where God, where God's people thought they could do things differently rather than doing God's prescribed way. God made it very clear through Leviticus how we ought to be worshipped. And throughout the time of Israel's history, there came moments, and 2 Samuel chapter 6 is another good example. Remember when David, before he, uh, brought, before he, became, when he became king, one of the things he wanted to do was bring the ark from Kirjath-Jerim to bring it back to Israel. And so what does he do? He's so excited, and everybody's excited. I mean, David was a fantastic king, but he made a mistake. And the Levites made a mistake. They had to take this thing from Kirjath-Jerim and and drive it farther east, uphill, up into Mount Moriah on the Temple Mount. So what do they do? They put it on a cart. Let's get one of those things from Home Depot. Let's, you know, those uh, those big vans, and we just slide open the door, throw it in there, close the truck, and up the hill we go. That's basically what they did. They put it on a new cart. And why a new cart? Because they saw the Philistines do it. The Philistines got away with it. And God says, well, they're ignorant. They don't know anything. But you know the truth. You were supposed to put those gold poles. You're not supposed to touch the ark. The Levites were supposed to put those poles on each side, sliding through the ark of the covenant. And four of them, one on each corner, were to bear it on their shoulders. And they were to walk all the way to Jerusalem. That's the way it should be done. And God in his grace, remember, allowed them to put it on a new cart. He allowed them. They probably would have gotten away with it because of God's grace, but then something, the unconscionable thing happened. The ox is going along, and Ohio and Uzzah are there on each side. You know, they got the beast, you know, pulling the cart, and they're, hey, this is pretty cool. And the ox stumbled. The thing started to buckle. The the cart started to shake. And he put his hand on the ark. And God struck him dead right there on the spot. I think God was able to keep that ark from falling. And even if he wasn't, so what? He touched it. God says, now you've gone too far. If you would have gotten this thing, I probably would have talked to you about it, David. But now he touched it. I'm not going to go that far. You see God's grace? He was gracious. They were probably, they could have gotten away with it to an extent, but then they went over the line. And so that's what happened. What about Leviticus? Remember in Leviticus 10 when Nadab and Abihu, they were supposed to offer incense on the altar? 
profane worship, and now they, they mix something with the incense to make it sparkle. Maybe they put sparklers in there, I don't know, or pop rocks inside the incense to make it pop and make it, make it sparkle, maybe make color. I don't know what they did. They did something because it, wasn't, it, wasn't, it just wasn't fulfilling me, man. I just, you know, the, the, the incense, it's just kind of like we do this every single day, and I just, I want something bigger, and I just want to see some fireworks, And God's like, no, I know how I ought to be worshipped. And God killed them on the spot. A fire proceeded from the throne of God and consumed them. So the manner of worship, the composition of the incense, clearly specified in Scripture. They began to tweak it and play with it. And God says, don't do it, don't do it. And they began to do it. And then they, whatever they did, it must have been a real show. Kids are probably really excited. Whatever it was, we have to remember that worship is not about us. It is not about us. It's about the Lord, and he has the right to tell us how and where he ought to be worshipped. We are not to make up our own rules as we go along. Verse 13, back in our text, and we're going to finish up here pretty quickly. So Ahaz, he burned his burnt offering. Notice he did it. A lot of things wrong with this young man, Ahaz. He's doing everything wrong. Every single thing he's doing wrong. His worship is a false worship. And it's false worship because it doesn't coincide with how God said he wanted to be worshipped. And do you know there's a lot of false worship in churches today too? A lot of times it can be about the performance. You can have a big worship team, and there's nothing wrong with a big worship team. But if their hearts aren't right collectively... If the worship is all about me being seen, you know, with my guitar, and I got the, you know, make sure you hit, you know, put the row three light right on my face, and I'll smile real big, and that gold tooth that I got ready to shine and blind everybody, you know, it's not about us. But in some churches, you got people roving around with a camera, you know, looking at the looking at the guitar player's hands, and you know, I've seen this, and the words are like the the songs are there's no hymns anymore, everything is about you know how I feel about God. I, you know, I feel about it. There's nothing wrong with a song about how you feel about God, but when the whole set of songs is nothing about my feelings about God and the lights have got to be just right, man, you've got to have the smoke pouring off the stage. It's a performance. It's a warm-up act for the, for the pastor. No, it's not. It should be as important as what I'm sharing from this pulpit. The worship should be a reflection of... A, it, there's no difference... It's just as important as what we're sharing here. The worship of God, we're doing it right now. We're giving attendance to his word. And so the words that we sing, are they biblical? And thank God, you know, Aubrey chose some great songs tonight. But there are churches, that are like some worship leaders are like, you know, I don't really care as long as it lifts people up. It's got a nice beat. Is it lifting people up? Is there a positive message? Is it a positive encouraging? It doesn't matter if it's positive and encouraging. If it doesn't reflect... God's word and his heart, then you got to get rid of it because it's false worship. And it's happening all over the country. Some of the mainline denomination churches, even some Calvaries, no longer concerned about biblical worship, word, words of worship that are right. Because believe it or not, and Aubrey knows this, every song that we sing is teaching you doctrine. And doctrine is incredibly important because doctrine affects your life, and what you believe in your doctrine will dictate how you live your life. 
So teaching is very important and what the, what the Bible says. So I better have, if the words that I'm speaking about Christ don't accurately reflect him, then I better ditch the song or change the lyrics. I've changed some lyrics of songs, and I think they're better than the original author. And I'm not saying that to be smug or arrogant. I'm not. I'm just being honest. <laughs> Sometimes I think these guys that are um, Christian artists, they need to run those, those lyrics by a couple pastors who have nothing to do with their movement. There's so much weird stuff going on, folks. And just like today, same thing back here, false worship. It's worshiping a different Jesus. A Jesus that where I feel good, you know, because if I don't feel good by the time the pastor gets up on the platform, then I'm leaving. If I don't feel like I'm getting, you know, if I'm clapping and really, you know, just if my flesh is not tantalized, I'm out of here. I'm not going to wait around. Hey, trust me, a person with a one-string banjo in the spirit can come up here and sing a hymn with a drone pedal on the, on the, on the little, one little thing that's out of tune, and God will accept that more than a huge band with an orchestra and singers and opera singers. He's like, you can throw all that away, but I'll take that, young, I'll take that person right there with the banjo, with the one-string banjo that's out of tune, whose heart is contrite before me, who has a broken heart singing right things. But Ahaz burned his own burnt offering and his grain offering. He burned his own, and he poured his drink offering and sprinkled the blood of the peace offerings on the altar. He also brought the bronze altar that was before the Lord. Notice this. There's a bronze altar. When you go into the temple, the first thing you see is an, is an altar. That's where sin has to be dealt with. And then afterwards... The laver where the, the priests would wash themselves because it's a bloody mess. But the first thing you see is an altar. So what does he do? He takes this new altar that he got designs for and he moves the bronze altar. He moves that one out of the way and he goes, ah, let's put the big one, the real nice one, the new and improved, the one with the shiny lights and the LEDs all around the edge. Let's put that one right there. Move the other one, that old thing, that old blasé thing. Uh, Moses, just move that out. Move that to the north. We're going to put this thing, this Cadillac, yes. Put it right there. I want to see it every morning. That's what he did. He put the bronze altar, which was before the Lord, from the front of the temple, from between the new altar and the house of the Lord, and he put it on the north side of the new altar. So he moves it. And then King Ahaz, verse 15, commanded Uriah the priest, saying, on the great new altar, notice that, it's so great, it's so new, it's so beautiful, it even came, it's got that fresh car smell to it. And I got that little, little tree, that little green tree hanging from it, you know, it's got that smell. It's great, it's new, it's beautiful. On the great new altar, burn the morning burnt offering and evening grain offering, the king's burnt sacrifice and his grain offering with the burnt offering of all the people of the land, their grain offering and their drink offerings and sprinkle on it all the blood of the burnt offering and all the blood of the sacrifice and the, and the bronze altar shall be for me to inquire on. But everybody else, including myself, will, will play with the Cadillac for a while. Let's put that other thing away. Do you see what's happening? You see the mixture? Does the devil ever come to you and present to you false doctrine and say, you know, to the point where everything is wrong? No, he's, he's, he's got this wrong altar in the wrong place, doing the wrong thing, him doing it instead of the Levites, 
but he's trying to please God by doing all the other offerings, the burnt offerings, the grain offerings. Those are things that they were supposed to do. Trying to mingle it all together, make it all happy together. Hey, listen, it doesn't work. It doesn't happen. It's not effective. God says, delete about 80% of this and just give me the 20%, because that's right. Everything else is nothing. It's flesh. Then he arrives at the priest, according to all that King Ahaz did, he commanded him. In verse 17, and King Ahaz, notice what he does. He cuts off the panels of the carts. You know, these were things that were already that God had given to, Moses, or to uh, Solomon to do. He removed the labors from them. He took down the sea from the brazen, brazen uh, excuse me, bronze oxen that were under it. He put it on the, on the pavement of stones. And also he built, removed the Sabbath pavilion, which they had built in the temple. And he removed the king's outer entrance from the house of the Lord on account of the king of Assyria. So he's making accommodation for whatever reason. You know, it's not about the Lord anymore. It's about everything else. It's about how I feel. It's about other people. See, it never should be that way. It's always, always, always about Jesus. It's got to be about him. And then it says, So Ahaz rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. And then Hezekiah, his son, reigned in his place. Now, as we get into Hezekiah next week, Hezekiah was one of those really good kings. He was, a, he was a good fellow. He was a good king. He had some mistakes, but he was a good guy. And what's really interesting to me is we're going to see, uh, actually next week, uh, we're going to look at the very ending of the northern ten tribes. They're going to be taken captive by the Assyrians. And then God, after they are led captive and many people are killed, God's going to start dealing with Judah, with Jerusalem. And you're going to see something really interesting. And I find this fascinating. The last few kings after that, those about 116 years after the Assyrians took the northern ten tribes captive in 722 B.C., it was about 116 years later in 606 B.C. that Babylon, the real power, more powerful than Assyria, now is coming on the doors of Judah and Jerusalem. And it's interesting that the kings that we're going to see now in Judah, after we see what happens next week, we're going to see a really great king, a really bad king, a really great king, not so good king. And you're going to see this really intensity of either being really sold out to do evil or really sold out to God. It seems like before the time of the end, there is always this intensity on both sides. And I find it interesting, even in our own country, I find it interesting, even in our own country, it seems like our country is dying. And what do you see? And, and even in the world, you see the enemy ramping up his efforts to where nothing is in the shadows anymore. It's all blatantly out in the front. Anybody see the Grammy Awards? It looked like hell. Flames on the stage, demonic worship. This is worship. They even called it a worship service, I think. This is how we worship. And it, there was people dressed up with horns and red suits, scantily clad women, the smoke, the, you know, the flames coming out the back. Seriously, if you've seen it, look, look it on, well, don't look it on YouTube. Don't look at it. 
I didn't even see it. I happened to see it on something, uh, a, a bite of it. I'm like, oh my goodness. There's no filter any longer, folks. Toward the end of the age that we are, we don't know the day or the time that Christ is going to come for the church, but I'm noticing, have you noticed? The intensity is ratcheted way up. There's very little people, few people in the middle. You're either completely sold out to Satan and following the things that Satan loves, or you are sold out to Christ and holding out for him. There's very few people in the middle. Everything is that polarization. I know that's happening politically, but it's also happening spiritually. And just as it's happening, and again, when Jesus comes for the church, it's going to be a significant event. It's going to be a very significant event. Just like the flood of Noah was a significant event, it's going to be significant. It's going to rock the world when Christ comes for his bride, the church, and raptures her from the earth. It's going to be a big deal. And it's going to get more intense as we get closer to that moment, whenever that is. And I will say this, that even before Christ comes back in his second coming to the earth, at least seven years after that event of the rapture, that time in between that you and I know as the tribulation period, you think that what we're going through right now is difficult? Do you think that the deceptions that we're seeing right now are incredible? We've seen nothing. Because when the church is removed, oh my goodness, he's gonna, God is going to send them a delusion we think that things are diluted now, it's going to get so whacked and weird that you're not even going to know what, what side is up and down. And that is when all hell is going to break loose on the earth. But thank God, Jesus said, if I didn't come back to the earth to stop it, no flesh would survive it. So what do we do with that? You know, as we look at this false worship of Ahaz, just completely bent on evil, you and I, our mandate is really simple. It's always been the same. Go out and tell people about Jesus. What is the, in Matthew, and I'll end with this. I know I've kept you, and I, I have, actually, I don't apologize. You're probably going, well, you better, because I've got, I got to eat dinner. What does it tell us in Matthew 28? All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth, Jesus says. So here's our mandate. Here's what we are to do. You know this. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And the good news is, he says, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Are we coming to the end of the age? It's looking pretty close to the end. But we have to continue going out and telling people the love of Jesus telling them how much he loves them. And it's not easy because they don't want to hear it, many of them. I didn't want to hear the gospel. I was so engrossed in my sin, I could care less. But God in his grace invaded my life when I didn't even ask him. And he moved on my heart in a way I can't even imagine. And I don't even know how he did it, to be honest with you, because I really didn't want him. Something happened. And I responded have you responded tonight? Maybe you've already responded, and hallelujah if you have. You know what? I would encourage you to continue to respond in love 
to Christ. He's done everything for us. All we have to do is trust him, believe in him, and then love him, and then go out and tell people of that love. Because folks, the alternative of what you and I have ahead of us is really horrible. And the Bible tells us that God, it's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. He doesn't delight in the death of the wicked. He would rather us all come to life. I think it's a pretty cool God. I love a God who tells me the truth about myself. He doesn't tell me, well, Rob, you know, you're just, it's because of your upbringing. You know, because your mom did this or your dad did this to you, that's the way, that's, that's the reason you're the way you are. And you can't do anything else. You're just like a machine. You got to do it because they did it. Don't try to break out. No, God says, no, I'm going to break that chain. A new creation. Doesn't he tell us that? You're now a new creation in Christ. And if I'm a new creation and his spirit indwells in me, that means I owe my life, my everything to him. Will you give everything to him today? Tonight, tomorrow? Wake up with it. It's a new day. His mercies are new every morning. Folks, do you realize we have such a great hope and a great future? We've got everything to look forward to. Even when things are going to pot on the earth right now, you keep looking to Christ. And you keep that attitude, keep the smile in your heart going because you've got a joy that overcomes all of it. The hope of his coming and the great message of the gospel dwelling in your heart to give to all those who need to hear it. Amen? Thank you for bearing with me for this long time. Let's stand and let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time together. And Lord, we ask that Lord, you would encourage us in, as we looked at the life of Ahaz and, and we looked at the false worship of, of Israel and even Judah, Lord. We were mindful, Lord, of, of our worship, Lord. May our worship be pleasing to you. Lord, may it be based on the finished work of Jesus. May it be based upon the truth of your word, Lord. And Father, may we shun anything that's going to lead us in a different direction that's not of your heart. Lord, that's aberrant. Lord, that's, out of, out of, that's just whacked. Lord, help us to serve you with joy and gladness. And Lord, we thank you for whispering to our hearts so many years ago. I look around this room and I just see my brothers, my sisters, Lord, how you've touched their lives, how you've transformed us. You've translated us from a kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of your dear son and the kingdom of light, the only light of Jesus Christ, Lord, how we thank you, how we praise you, how we honor you, Lord, how we worship you, Lord, because of who you are and because what you've revealed to us, Lord, you are worthy of all things, holy and positive and pure, all power and glory belong to you. And it's in your precious name that we pray. And Lord, I pray for my brothers and sisters. Encourage them tonight. Strengthen them for their day tomorrow. Keep them safe. Keep them healthy, Lord. Keep our eyes focused on you. Open your word to us and fill us with your spirit, Lord. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.